To ship, of course. It's time again for the Ship Show, the podcast where we discuss build engineering, DevOps, release management, and everything between. I'm your host, Paul Reed, SoberBuildEng on Twitter and at SoberBuildEngineer.com. And who's here with me for episode OX20? This is Sasha at Sasha underscore D on Twitter and BrideyRedhead.com. This is Seth at CheesePlus on Twitter. And this is Yusuf at BuildScientist on Twitter. It's EJ at Ysermela on Twitter. How is everyone doing? It's holiday time. I'm cold. <laughs> it is cold. It's, it's actually really cold. It's really it's cold. cold in Texas. I'm in Portland and it's really cold. It's like snowed here. <laughs> Yeah, day after tomorrow, cold, but there's there's no Jake Gyllenhaal to rescue us all. Oh, I'd like to be rescued by Jake Gyllenhaal. I, I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't mind. I'm sure, I'm sure he's got like a better place to be than I do. <laughs> all right. Well, uh, even though it's cold out, we have a hot episode of uh, the Ship Show for you. We're going to be sitting down with improv instructor Chris Sams, who does improvisation work with all sorts of organizations, including tech companies, and we're going to be talking with him about the benefits of doing that, especially in the context of DevOps transformation. But of course, first up, as we always do, news and views. So Test Kitchen 1.0 was released last week. Uh, looks like you can uh, check that out at kitchen.ci, which is kind of an awesome domain name. Did you guys see this announcement? I did, of course. Yeah, I totally saw it, but like, Test Kitchen has been like, or at least I've been using the 1.1 release for a while now, so I had no idea that 1.0 came out. I saw the new site, though, which is great. Yeah. Um, it's no longer beta. Oh, yeah, cool. exactly. <laughs> Because for a long time I've been using it in like alpha and beta status, so I'm gonna I'm happily going to update all my cookbooks. And was actually on the on a hangout with Fletcher Nickel talking about some changes and things. So it's it's changed a little bit and it's gotten a lot more friendly. Nice, nice. So basically, it's a way to continuously test all of your cookbooks. Yeah, and yep. it's also a way to test things in suite. So like if you are supporting more than one operating system, uh, it's really nice for that. Oh, nice. Uh, I mean, I generally don't use it for anything. If I'm if I'm doing just one operating system support, uh, I generally just use uh, Brickshelf and Vagrant, but if you have to do a suite of tests, it's super for that because you can define them. And it also looks like it works across different virtualization and cloud yeah. providers to test all of that weirdness that you have to mm -hmm. account for, too. Yes. Oh, no. Yeah, I, I use it to test the React cookbook. We have test kitchens. We can actually test all the different operating systems. And I was trying to get FreeBSD added in there, but we're, we're waiting on some vagrant stuff before that'll work. But it's the nice thing is I could just do a kitchen test and it'll test every single permutation of package and platform. Nice. Um, and I don't have to like touch anything. It does it all with Vagrant, and then it says at the end, it's like, hey, this one platform failed, and it's super, super nice. Hey, your your cookbook makes tasty food or makes horrible food. <laughs> tasty food? <laughs> it's a cookbook, right? It is, it is a cookbook. I'm hoping it makes tasty food. Um, <laughs> yeah. I'm surprised I'm surprised it runs in Vagrant just because of the memory requirements, but that's another story. Yeah. <laughs> Next up, we have uh, actually a couple of items about the healthcare.gov de debate debacle. Uh, we'll point to a, what got my attention on this was a tweet from Werner Vogels, is, uh, who works for AWS. He said, this healthcare.gov progress report final makes me sad. Hardware scale is the past. And I thought that was interesting uh, because it was kind of like breaking news ahead of AWS says AWS would solve your problem. And that was also interesting in the context. There was an article that uh, GigaOM did uh, just this week talking about how for startups, they actually did the math on various cloud providers and said for startups, dedicated hardware uh, actually may be better than cloud. So I just wanted to bring up, I, you know, it, it's interesting all of the I don't know, back and forth about healthcare.gov because the news around it has been for states that came up with their own exchanges seems to be working well, but for states that didn't do that, that's where a lot of the healthcare.gov problems are. And it seems like the upshot of the story is when you have bad actors in the context of your software project, it's going to fail, which like we all knew that. I... Well, yeah, if you have bad actors, it's just that I think everyone kind of did the, uh, and I was, you know, certainly complicit in this, at least at least to a bit, was was like, well, as soon as it launched, everyone was like, oh, well, if you went with our cloud service or our database or our X, Y, Z, and it's like, all of that stuff is meaningless because it's a government project, so whatever right. they picked as long ago as they started this thing and whatever contractors they went through, I mean, that whole requisitioning system and, like, procurement thing is already a huge problem to get something like this actually work and then be able to iterate on it quickly. So right. for me, any of those other arguments were kind of meaningless. There was actually a good quote from, 
I'm not, I can't establish the, the validity of it, but it was from IBM, and they basically said they came to the government many, many years ago and actually said, we could fix this whole problem and build you a software system, and the government was like, no, we need to do it ourselves. Well, well but so, so, you, know. you know, the thing is, is it's almost like, you know, if you look at, like, the state-run exchanges, which there have been problems, too. There was a, just a, a story about, I think it was actually uh, Washington or Oregon's exchange that Oracle had some problems with or something, and, and I'll try to dig up the link on that. But, you know, it's not to say that the state-run exchanges are perfect, but it's just kind of like every, you know, this the elephant in the room is that this is a political issue, but people are trying to couch it in terms of technology. Right. And it's just getting very frustrating from the standpoint of a, it's kind of like if you had a software team and you had a team responsible for the database, and they just said, you know what, we're just not going to deliver anything. It's the rest of the team's problem. And so the rest of the team pulls together some Thing, and it's not the most optimized database queries. Like it may need, you know, have a lot of problems or whatever. But they ship the product. Mm -hmm. Every startup <laughs> is familiar with that. Every major company, you know, the management side would be, oh great, you know, the team rallied and shipped something. And now when it's the government, we're all crying all over it. And it's just, you know, there was another article we'll link to that, you know, how three young coders built a better healthcare.gov. And it's like, shut, just shut up. It's not the same thing. <laughs> That, that tweet is really disingenuous, though, too, because um, everybody knows that the first thing people do to fix bad software is to throw hardware at it. Right, so, right. I mean, well, and the, uh, the other thing, too, is that we've all been in situations where the website is down or the service is down, whatever, and everyone, possibly up to the CEO, is saying, just get it working. I don't care how you do it. This is what they did. They bought hardware to get it working, and now people are like, well, it's the past. It's like, just shut up. Just shut my, my my kind of uh, thing. Why why is it a bad thing that they threw hardware at it? Given the the situation, they have millions of users and it's not. I'm saying that his thing that Amazon could have made a better government site is disingenuous because throwing hardware at a software problem doesn't mean that throwing cloud at it would have been any better. Mm, that's sure. a good point. Yeah. Well, and also, I mean, there, there are probably restrictions on, I'm assuming that some of these old exchanges or other, like, IRS systems are stuff that are not net exposed. So they're going to have to go through brokers and things that have oh, connections right. to, say, mainframes and stuff. So you can't just slap a cloud on it and, like, be like, oh, look, it's fixed. Um, so, yeah, I do think it was it was definitely disingenuous. I mean, everyone's trying to make money when they, when they pull those tweets out. But cloud apply directly to the forehead. Exactly. Yeah. Cloud apply directly to the forehead. Has anyone found out like why it was slow? Oh yeah, there's. I mean, they've actually had. Uh, I believe there's an after-action report. I mean, it's not the right term. Um, Post-mortem. I believe there was one. I also watched some of the congressional hearings where they were. The problem is they weren't terribly technical. They were. It was politicians asking about technical things, getting confused by the technical explanation, and then yeah, basically I'm sure. explaining how explain exactly explaining how computers work. So there there have been some things that have fallen out of it. Um, and I've read well, I've read at least a few. And it's not going to be one single problem. It this is the standard problem of if you have a huge big software project and you're trying to deliver by a certain date and you've got a lot of different teams working together and this is not news I mean the there's been some postmortems on Boeing's delivery of the 787 and they had the same sorts of project management problems and every single company that is of any size has had a project like this that has just sort of failed and they either ditch it or they spend time fixing it. This was just high visibility and, and in some sense the tech industry's whining about it is disingenuous because it makes it sound like none of us have ever worked on a failed project. Like I know I have. I'm pretty sure all of us have worked on a project right. that at the end oh, yeah. could be considered failed. And so it's just like for well, me personally, about, it's tiring. Uh, we talked about it before that the government is required to split its work up amongst different contractors, which is an utter bull when you try to actually get a, a, a project done. Right, yeah. and there's no incentivization for any of those contractors to make any of the other contractors look good beyond fulfilling their contracts, which even that right. is questionable. So well, that's, it's, again, incentives and human factors. Yep. I've, I've been sort in of, government work before, and it's had the same problems where you have to, like, how you source vendors and everything is half of the problem of getting the product shipped. You have to go through arcane processes of acquiring them. Um, you can't just, like, go hire a hip startup to, like, build it for you. Yeah. Well, uh, next up we have sort of kind of a humorous, well, humorous slash sad, depending on your viewpoint, uh, article that was talking about how uh, users over at 4chan tricked a bunch of people into making their holiday time very sad with respect to their usage of their brand new Xbox One. Apparently, they, they were posting instructions that supposedly allowed you to uh, make your Xbox One Xbox 360 backwards compatible, but it turned it into a big space heater. Did you guys see this? Uh, sad, that, sad. that is evil. <laughs> it I, is. I, uh... 
I laughed. I laughed pretty hard at this because of, of, I was talking to some people about Microsoft. A lot of people thought it was cool because they're enabling a developer console essentially that you could you could enable and you can actually turn a retail kit into a dev kit, which is really cool. It's like the not the first time something like this has happened, but it's it's rare for you know they usually have like a crazy expensive dev kit and then you have right. re- you know your regular retail hardware. Yeah. And so for them to leave that open, where people are like, oh, I wonder if anyone's going to abuse that, and then like, sure enough. It was yeah. It was it was priceless. Yeah, priceless uh, in exactly as much as it cost for an Xbox One. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, it's, it's I mean, we, this is like we saw this is like removing System Thirty Two directories like back in the day, and like I just you know the kids at 4chan, this was completely expected behavior. I'm just kind of laughing my ass off that so many people fell for it. Yeah. I mean, so obviously, they didn't know it came from. Did, did somebody think this was some sort of a cheat code? I don't know if anybody remembers the old, like... Uh, up, down, up, pub. down, left. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, it's a compelling argument. You know, do this special thing, and you can play your old Xbox games. Although, they had you set a setting that was uh, freezone.reboot. Uh, and if I saw that setting, I might not just blindly enter it. Yeah, but, but, you're, but you're a technical guy. Like, you, you would... <laughs> some of these people are just yeah. like, yeah... Some of these people are like, man, I want to play my old version of Call of Duty, and like, not that's as far as they thought into it. So, uh, yeah, yeah, it's still okay. painful. Still painful. It's yeah. all right. Where you can all go buy PS4s. Uh. <laughs> uh, yes. <laughs> all right. Well, next up, we're going to be chatting improv with uh, Chris Sams here on the Ship Show. Welcome back to The Ship Show. I'm your host, Paul Reed. So as longtime listeners of The Ship Show may know, one of my big things is looking for different disciplines that can show us something about DevOps and DevOps culture. My big one is aviation. But I'm here today with someone who has a different take and a valuable take on what we do as developers and systems administrators and how some of the techniques that he works with can help us with DevOps culture transformation and and that sort of thing. So Join me in welcoming Chris Sams, uh, Bay Area Improv Coach, to the show. Welcome, Chris. Great. Thanks, Paul. So I wanted to start with Improv Coaches. Like, that's, tell us a little bit about how your background and how you came into doing improv coaching. Right. Well, it was a little bit of a circuitous path. <laughs> As I started in 2000 with my first ever improv class here in the Bay Area at Bats Improv and found myself, a friend actually suggested that we should take this class. And it was super fun. And I fell in love with it. And ever since then, I've been doing improv not only as a performer, but more so as a trainer and teacher, as a coach of improvisation for adults that want to learn it for the stage, and then more recently in applied improvisation, how we apply improv off stage into our work lives. And also your your background, actually, because I found this fascinating, your your educational background is not even related at all to improv. That's right. I was a religion major at Duke University. Yeah, yeah. So so it was just uh, when you came out to the Bay Area and you're like, uh, so I need to I need to do something and let's go take this class. And then it kind of took off that way. In a way. Or are you saying religion is a lot of improv? <laughs> There's a lot of improv in a lot of areas of life, for sure. I mean, I think it was an improvisational major. And I look back on it because I think end of my sophomore year, we had to declare a major. Mm-hmm. And I liked my religion professor, so I ended up making that my major. But as you can see, I didn't use that as most of my professional career. I think I got into nonprofit administration. Actually, I worked uh-huh. in the medical center uh-huh. at Duke University Medical Center and then out here at the San Francisco Food Bank prior to this, doing volunteer services administration. So improv was a very much a left turn from a lot of these other areas. But it, it's kind of funny, though, because it's like you're kind of improving that way and just that's true that's true and now as i see it i've i've found my passion you know i've been doing this for about nine years with companies in working with applied improvisation so how you apply the tools of improvisation for the stage and bring the principles theories and practices to work right yeah so let's talk a little bit about that because i think a lot of listeners are probably going what does improv have to do with you know tech jobs or my job or devops at all like i don't see that connection and, you know, when we were talking, one of the really interesting things that uh, you had mentioned is that you do a lot of trainings and coaching sessions with companies of all sorts, but especially tech companies. That's right. Yeah. Tech companies here in the Bay Area, I think, are open to different ideas and different types of training models and things like that. And so for a way, improv is kind of this 
other area that feels a little bit tangential, but in somewhat they find that there has to be value in it somewhere. So where can we find the value from that? I think what, what you asked initially is, you know, how do people perceive it? What is the connection since it doesn't seem very obvious? Mm-hmm. I think it's because most people's associations with improvisation are about, oh, improv is about comedy. Or whose being, line is it anyway? Whose line is it anyway? Yeah, right. being funny or clever. And in terms of the improv training we do, it couldn't be further from that. We actually tell our students, try not to be funny, try not to be clever. You're going to undermine the scene it's about being obvious and which again is counterintuitive you know versus right. trying to do something very clever and we were talking about this too if you've seen the office and michael scott doing his improv classes it's it's not every scene ends with i've got a gun right <laughs> right in some cases it might be a post-it note that says i have a gun. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah i think in that way you know improv is very different than what people expect so it's about listening more paying more attention noticing more being open to your partner and their ideas building on their ideas these different principles that are much more not about being funny but about being more resourceful and more present. You know, it's interesting that you say that because you were talking too a lot about how a lot of the work that you do is kind of very fundamental communication skills. I mean, you said that listening, but also can be useful in in how you go about presenting your ideas and sort of collaborating. We talked a lot about that's a big thing in in DevOps and, and in tech companies and companies in general lately has been sort of how can we be more collaborative. This realization that the value is in collaboration and and that the top-down sort of power structure in companies doesn't work anymore. It doesn't scale. It doesn't, you know, and, and we've seen this in the, like, lean manufacturing. They talk about all the knowledge is on the factory floor. And so you want to optimize for that. And so, yeah, you, you were talking about how a lot of it is fundamental communication. How, how, do you, how do you make the leap to, like, we, we talked about improv and then, like, communication and listening. And, like, what, what kind of things do you end up sort of kind of covering and talking about and working with with those kind of areas? Yeah, you know, I think one of the ways improv works is because it's about really leveling the field. So we're used to kind of operating our silos and our areas of expertise and not really collaborating with other people. And as soon as we do, we kind of fall into our old habits that we've either learned from preschool and haven't really developed since then or rely to our own instincts. And in some cases, it it plays to that people's strengths. And a lot of times it doesn't because we haven't developed our skills in that way. So I think that... And that's pretty common among engineers, right? It's like, that's the stereotype, (laughs) right? That we all could be uh, better communicators. Right. Well, in some ways, improv does I mean, it applies to communication and creativity, collaboration, leadership, sharing our stories. There are so many different elements in which improv is useful. Certainly around, we can imagine risk-taking and innovation wouldn't happen if we did everything by script. We would never find any of these new innovative solutions. Right. So we're all the time discovering new things. And part of that is creating improv is a really interesting way of helping us tap into our imagination, our creativity, our innate sense of imaginative power, I guess. And it gives us a chance to work with someone else and to actually use their ideas to spark our own ideas. And then if we can accept other people's ideas, accept our own ideas, trust that, and it comes from a place of being more open and expansive, positive and accepting, which is kind of counter again to what we imagine, you know, the funny comedians do when they right. say, you know, no one is seen and gets a big laugh. It's it's more about the positive frames that help us see solutions and possibilities. Well, you said a real big keyword in sort of the DevOps movement is, is silos. And, and we talk a lot about breaking down silos and the whole con- sort of the word DevOps comes from the developer silo and the operation silo. And the fact that those were traditionally two different, total different organizations. So throwing stuff over the wall. And w- when we were talking earlier, you had mentioned there was a, you'd done some work with like a development team and a user experience team. And you talked about sort of what had happened there, which is very similar to sort of like ops and dev. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about that, like what, what your experience was with those two teams. Sure. I love working with such a variety of teams because in some ways they each bring their own experience and every corporate culture that we work with is very different. So some companies have a policy where they're all the time doing fun activities for their teams to interact and engage. And you can tell they already have a great rapport when they come in. Other times you can tell they're meeting people for the first time at some people's first week. They have no idea what to expect. And in terms of when you say, you know, what we talk about, it's really interesting because most of the workshops that we do are really about engaging, interactive experiences. So we're getting people up on their feet. They have to collaborate. They have to engage and interact with one another. And we're putting them in situations that they typically wouldn't do so that it kind of gets them out of their habits and patterns and routines and forces them to be open up and be present and really be truly engaged in that moment with each other, which to me, I think is the most exciting part of the work. And it's really where the learning comes from. So after we do a series of those types of activities that are get people on their feet and engaging in either some kind of verbal or physical 
activity, then we have a chance to debrief and really stop and pause and reflect, see what we notice about those exercises, what happens, what happened in terms of our self-awareness and also uh, social awareness around the group dynamic. Yeah, I was curious about that because you were talking about the debrief and I, and I wanted to ask about that a little bit because I think a lot of people might hear about this and, and might be a little concerned about, well, you know, what if this goes wrong? What if we kind of get derailed or, or, or they may think of it as sort of a round robin thing. It gets to them and they don't have anything to say and then the whole thing falls apart. You talked a little bit about the debrief and the value of that. What generally kind of do you find comes up in a debrief? There's part of the debrief that we look at. One area I think that's important is for people to have the moment to pause and reflect on their own experience. And everyone perceives reality differently. They see it from their own point of view. And what often happens is we go through so many different activities throughout the day without reflecting on what we notice, mm-hmm. what we learn. Giving people that pause to have that beat and to share it helps increase their own understanding of the situation, maybe their own approaches, and help create enlightenment for their other teammates to Mm -hmm. say, oh, this is how my team member thinks about something very differently than I do. Secondly, I think it's important because that's where the ideas get generated. That's where we start to share on the reflection and brainstorm ideas of what could work in the future, sort of people's own personal relevance and application, how they're going to apply this learning and have these takeaways to last beyond this one experience from the day. So it's kind of that aha moment that we see the light bulbs go off and people will share this really great revelation that they noticed from the exercise or activity that we lead. To me, that's where the value comes from. And that's why I think the work that we do is so important to really facilitate that experience. So as you point out, it's not this awkwardness or silence or putting people on the spot to feel pressure to speak or come up with something brilliant or profound. It's much more about opening up, inviting that with an open-ended question that creates that space for people to have the insights to share them and not put people on the spot, but really give them uh, the opportunity to share their knowledge and insight. So that's probably one of the biggest difference between like stage improv uh, or whose line is it anyway or or improv teams is that when we go to a comedy club or, or watch the show they may debrief after the show to see what worked and what really got a good laugh and that's how they kind of optimize and refine their work as a team but we don't see that we never see that and that's different when you're doing the coachings that you do there is this whole actual debrief process where you go through and talk with everyone and talk about what felt good what was uncomfortable and how the team can work with it that's right I think people are thinking about it from the end product of a TV show or a a comedy club. They imagine that there's one or two people that are going to be put in front of a mic, shoved up there against their will, forced to say something funny, and then evaluated by their peers on how funny or clever they were. (laughs) Right. Right. Versus this idea of it's an interactive experience where we might have people pair up with a partner, even in a group of 20 or 50, find one-on-one conversations that will facilitate that interaction then they get a chance to talk with their partner what happened and notice, and then maybe report back to the larger group for people that want to share some of those insights. And then that's really where the debrief comes in so that people get a chance to not only say what the purpose of the activity was, usually it's not to be funny, it's usually to either learn how to share control more effectively, either to step up, to speak up, find their voice, or you know take the lead moment, or to hold back and not to try to control or or drive the situation as much as they might typically do, usually out of fear of having something go out of their control. Or, or patterns. You know, if you're in a managerial position, that might be what has been expected of you traditionally in other organizations and maybe this organization. But a lot of times, if you're, we're, we talk a lot about organizational transformation and DevOps. Maybe that's the difference is that that's the, having everybody think they have to go to a manager for leadership is where that doesn't scale and breaks down. That's right. Yeah. Right. It's about finding those places that we can be individual leaders and also be adaptive leaders. So kind of figure out what works and what doesn't in the moment and pay attention to that and then figure out how are we more open to change? How are we willing to risk an idea that may not work? How do we are willing to even challenge ideas that we think this needs to be challenged? How can I do this in a positive framing way so that it doesn't seem like I'm shutting someone else down or shooting down their ideas? I'm curious if you have an example like found during a debrief of a situation that somebody felt was a negative or kind of brought and and was this was bad or whatever but turned out to be really insightful and it was the debrief that turned it from oh this was uncomfortable and icky or whatever into like oh i get it that you were talking about the aha moment do you do any examples come to mind there are so many examples i don't even know which really which ones to choose i think it's it's so much about i would go back to this phrase experiential learning it's about having that experience and whatever it can be right for some it might be icky and uncomfortable for some, it might be wildly fun and exhilarating. So often it's what happens in play. I think we see this with children in the sense of just like in the playground, they have some exciting breakthroughs and moments, and then they also have some really terrible days. And, you know, it's kind of like this idea when we think about teamwork, 
work. It's often we go back to these moments of kickball or being picked last for the team or letting the team (laughs) down, like I struck out. And so I think one of the areas where improv can be most helpful is just like in real life, we will usually punish ourselves if we make a mistake, if we screw up. And we tend to kind of put that into our bodies. We slump around. We look really in kind of don't hit me, you know, crouch position instead right. of when we make mistakes. Because usually we want to punish ourselves so that no one else will punish us worse than we would. Right. And instead... Or we're, we're afraid, even if we think it's not fair, we're afraid that the organization will because the culture might not have... We talk a lot about uh, no-blame postmortems and DevOps, which is... It's surprising that that's a is even a revelation, but in a lot of organizations, it is like find the person who screwed up and discipline them. Right, and it's it, so it's so counter in terms of what we're trying to do in improvisation. We actually reward mistakes. Those mistakes we treat them as gifts, and we celebrate failure. We kind of embrace it. We look for those moments. Then instead of going, we should beat ourselves up. It's more of like the success that you have when you get first place or the trophy, and we kind of do the ta-da with our arms up in the air. Right. This idea, and in part, you know, we do it because we can see the solutions from that. We can learn from the failure and learn from the mistakes, and have a really positive approach to that. And also not take ourselves so seriously. There are times when mistakes actually, you know, we we're not trying to intentionally sabotage something. We just tried something we haven't done before like improvisation perhaps right and it helps to create a more safe space for participants to take risks smart risks not dumb risks you know we're not asking them to do something that's going to harm or embarrass themselves but in a way push themselves to try something new and from that result usually people have a they're being supported by their peers and colleagues and b more importantly they're doing something that they feel like oh i didn't know i could do this they're finding these this place of some kind of internal courage or strength or imagination or creativity that they didn't know that they've had because it's kind of atrophied as they've gone into adulthood. Right. Well, and we were talking too about team building exercises earlier, and we were both, both kind of chuckling at uh, the, the standard fall and your team catches you. And there's value in that. I don't mean to sort of denigrate it or anything, but we've all kind of done that. And we all kind of know what it's about, but it is in some sense very static. Like we all know what that activity is. And even though when you get up and do it, it might be a little uncomfortable, you know, you do it and you're done. Whereas improv, there is that major difference of it's actually interactive. So you really don't know where it's going to go. I mean, you're either going to fall back or you're not, and you hope the team's going to catch you, and they generally do, and then it's done. Whereas improv, like, you may go do a thing, and it may not work out, but that's okay. Absolutely. Just like life. Exactly. And then partly what I think is one of the important takeaways in that moment is how we can support each other in that process and how the team comes together to support people when it doesn't go as we hoped. And from that moment, we see, again, we see pathways forward. And we also learn more insights about how our partners think, how our team members work, our own styles and strategies, and kind of where their brain goes a different direction from ours and how that can be really useful if we can start to harness the differences and points of view. When you were talking too about this in the context of, and I thought this was really fascinating, in the context of with improv, the whole point is to make the team succeed, to make the scene succeed. And so the way that you approach that is is often very different than, you know, I'm trying to to optimize for my own benefit or, or success. And how to do that requires a lot of like active listening, a lot of communication skills. You're playing off of your partner uh, or your other team members. And to make that, that scene in whose line is it anyway fun, right there's a lot of actually active listening going on that's right i mean in some ways it's this idea of personal responsibility that goes into the team success and in some cases it's letting go a feeling like it has to be all about me and that i can actually start trusting my teammates and that makes a big difference in terms of the overall success you're not feeling the same pressure that you do to have to be witty or funny or clever and improv or to be successful or perfect or completely accurate in your own work i mean because in an improv scene too there's value in the in the uh the, the straight guy that comes into the scene and and they're the comedy derives from that and so maybe it's not in every situation you're not supposed to be the one making the laughs right you're just supposed to play it straight and, and have people kind of bouncing stuff off of you I think so like if you look at from an audience standpoint when they watch an improv show they'll see the person who says something on stage that they'll think is hilarious this person is brilliant and usually what's happening in the improviser's mind is they're just simply being obvious they're saying what <laughs> they see and they say it in the moment and they're not afraid to risk saying something that seems really apparent to everyone in the theater and so when they do that moment everyone in the audience will laugh it doesn't actually take brilliance. It takes courage to risk being obvious and saying something that might seem unoriginal or even slightly boring to them, but it will seem incredibly creative to someone else who's just watching this moment. Right. I wanted to ask a little bit about, you know, we talked a little bit about sort of the engineering stereotype, and I wanted to talk a little bit about people that might be listening like, I could never do this, and this will never work, and I'm that's just not 
my personality and you were talking about especially and i identified with this because i'm an introvert introverts who may be like oh they're trying to change me into this (laughs) extrovert who's gonna go you know be a performer now or something and that's really not what it's about Certainly, right. I think those are valid concerns because a lot of times people, the reason why they won't do improv, like we'll hear when I talk to them about doing an improv workshop and they'll say we're going to do something else instead, is often because the voices of what they fear might happen have you know, you overpowered. Mean the, you mean they'll, they'll tell the team it's not an improv workshop, it's a... Well, if they've gone as far as to accept to doing an improv workshop, they certainly won't tell their team they're going to do an improvisation workshop for fear that people will call in with a mysterious illness or feign having too much work to do that they can't get away from their desk. They'll improv an excuse. Exactly. And they'll be really good at it. They will come up with some amazingly brilliant ideas of how to get out of it. So it's much better usually when it's kept a complete secret. Then, of course, there's that moment of terror that comes across people's minds if they're afraid or skittish or scared of the concept of improv. People who are skeptical, we go into arms crossed, eyes rolled, this is going to be horrible, as you point out, the world's worst team building experience that they can imagine right. is what they're expecting they're walking into. And so what's fun for me as a facilitator is getting to have that audience, getting to see those moments of shock. And when that happens, it's kind of fun because I can read what the group energy is. And you can. there will also be people who are very excited and they'll be totally into it and you'll see their eyes light up and they open up and they start smiling and they can't wait. They're really excited about the opportunity. So you get all of these different people that have different personalities, that have different expectations for it. And it's about creating a safe space immediately for people to try this together and to start looking for ways to support one another and not going into the place of fear of, I have to be a performer now. We're not trying to change anyone to become professional improvisers. We want to, hopefully, if I'm successful at my work, I'm going to give them a really positive experience that they'll have a lot of fun, feel like they've been playing, like they were as children when they imagine the most playful day that they've had and find something that's incredibly valuable for them so as they're learning they can take this away and apply something very differently in the future that they will learn based on this experience in this workshop today they'll find a new path forward and new possibilities that they have previously to this point been closed off to. So I want to play a little bit of devil's advocate because, as I mentioned, one of the big connections I always make between DevOps is aviation and how we do things there. And certainly in that sort of operational context, you don't want to be improvising everything. And you don't want to be improvising in certain sort of urgent or or emergency type situations. You don't want to be sort of improvising all the time. So I wanted to ask a little bit about as it applies in sort of an operational context. I mean, are there areas where you think improvisation is not actually useful or you may not want it like it's not a good go-to because you've talked a lot about creating a safe space for failure and that's actually a big sort of mantra that that you hear a lot especially in sort of the startup space about we need to create a space that's okay to fail but then there are certain things where you actually want to minimize failure right and it's actually not okay to fail does improv apply at all in those situations is the tone of the way you might use those skills do they change a little bit Walk me through what your thoughts are on, sure. on where maybe maybe you don't want to do it. Or do I have that wrong? Are there always some, something it's applicable somehow? There's a place for planning and preparedness. And that there is obviously a lot of usefulness in that regard. And that, that there would be times in which improvisation would be a horrible tool to use. So if you're trying to do strategic planning, for instance, to think about your five-year plan, improv might have some elements that might be helpful if you're brainstorming possibilities. For instance, it could be very useful, but in in other areas than that plan, it's going to be horrible. It's just the wrong tool for the wrong job. I think there are other times where it's the only tool that we can use, and it's actually a vital tool, and it's as important as the plan is how we respond to the plan in the moment. How do we adapt? So I would actually challenge you a little bit. I think that In some ways, there are situations where in these emergency situations, although the user's manual may be really helpful for us to have that base of knowledge, it's actually only improvisational leadership in the moment that makes us capable of pivoting in the right time and making those changes. I mean, I look at disaster planning right now and you see when these natural disasters happen, how much of the time they talk about improvisational response to what happens. We have to manage that response clearly and there's useful ways and tools to do that. I think it's the improvisational nature of responding helps us actually cope in these emergency, urgent situations. So so do you think it would be accurate to say then that maybe, you know, and I'm I'm sort of being a little curmudgeonly here and I'll, I'll cop to that, but would it be accurate to say then that, that there's sort of a bar above which 
in those situations, improvisational skills is a good way to go. For instance, what I'm thinking of is there's a particular set of emergencies on your site that you have dealt with and you have a playbook for. Run the playbook. But if that doesn't work, then we're kind of in unknown territory. And then those improvisational, like you said, disaster situations, there's a bar above which, like, we're, we are in uncharted territory. We need to, to sort of think collaboratively and think in a new way. And we may leverage the existing runbook, but in ways we didn't even think that we were going to ever use it. Yeah, I think that's and, brilliant. And is, is that an accurate restating of sort of, it's a do I have the right idea? It's a brilliant restating. I wish yeah. I had said it that way <laughs> initially. You know, I think that in some ways it is about this idea of finding out when improvisation is the right tool to use. And in some ways it can actually help us, I think, get better plans to begin with. So if we actually look at the playbook and plan book that we have, improv may make it easier to build that together if we're trying to come up with what is the playbook for this. If we can see someone else's point of view, build on their ideas, add to it more effectively, try to come together around having a common vision to support these ideas. Maybe, as you say, innovate some new ideas that would be actually better policies that we could do that might be streamlined or more effective or efficient by being able to notice what is working and what are the bright spots and how we can build on that. Improv has a way of helping us actually create a better plan. And it, as you point out, it also helps us have a way forward when every other plan has been exhausted or there isn't a plan. It's something about the future that is ambiguous or uncertain. It seems to me that uh, if you have an ability to improvise and do things like that, that it's really a way to level your own value in the organization up. Because in the disaster situations you're talking about, or pilots on aircraft in emergency situations that there's no checklist for, the people that seem to really succeed in those environments are people that know their equipment. They know the plane like the back of their hand. So they know that if they take these two checklists that have nothing to do with each other and they work them together, that it's going to be fine. Or they know that the checklist was written for these 50 situations, but I know that this particular valve has this emergency thing on it that I can use. Or in disaster situations, I know the people in the organizations around me in the county, and I know who I can leverage, which means I have to have those skills and I have to develop them. And then I'm bringing more value to the organization by that. I think that's such an important point. And this is one of the interesting things to me about improvisation is when people say, oh, you improvise, you make things up. Well, that's partially true. We also spend a lot of time getting better at this skill of how right. to do it. And so in the very same way of being knowledgeable about your subject matter, you can't expect for us, we say we're going to go to an improv rehearsal now or improv practice. And then people will usually tease you and say, I thought you were making this up. What's the purpose of an improv rehearsal or practice? Isn't that an oxymoron? And in a way, I mean, of course, it, it seems that way on surface level. But if you think about it, improvisers who do really great work on stage would never be able to do this. If I had five random strangers and say, work together, go, make something up, it would be a disaster, right? So there's this place where planning and knowledge, commitment, putting the time in really makes a difference at being really skilled at what you do. So in the same way of improvisation, you can't expect to do a two-hour or three-hour workshop and think, great, we're going to be perfect improvisers now, right? That's not right. going to happen. You haven't put the, the time into it, just as those expert pilots do. I think in a way, though, you can be open to new ideas and open to new possibility with as little bit of training as two or three hours. And in some way, the more we build on that and put that into practice and repeat some of those patterns and behaviors and habits and then create that more of a pattern and culture, then it does become a way it changes the course and people do feel more prepared for those unexpected moments. It's about, I think, preparing for the moments that are unexpected. Right. How can we be fully prepared not to freak out, not to panic, not to want to run out of the room when... And it's funny, we a couple episodes ago we were just talking about the episode, the name of the episode was the Keep Calm and Prod On and it, it was talking about people that struggle with that and I was one of those before I became a pilot, you know, where certain situations would really freak me out. We were laughing about this earlier, uh, about this is super embarrassing, but when I was a teenager I used to plan out phone conversations conversations because I was so introverted and nervous and I would like write a flow chart out for the phone conversation. So certainly, you know, I, I could see right where that's, that would be useful. You did bring up something, you know, talking about the notion of improvisation and how people think about it. And a lot of times people think of it as a yes and. Mm. And, and that's sort of the common catchphrase. And I wanted to talk to you a little bit about that because it, it seems in pop culture that's started to become overused a little bit. It's like DevOps and like Agile, <laughs> right? People say that and they think it means something that, that actually when you dig down into it, it, it doesn't actually mean that. We also talked about there's a couple of other versions of that where people say yes and, but they're not actually yes anding as it were. There's the kind of the yes but or the yes 
or, or right. right yeah so what what are those sure well I'm, I'm in some ways i'm very happy that yes and is becoming more common in the culture so it's not these you know magical term that we reveal and act as if that's some big takeaway or aha for some people it may be but for most of us i think we've probably heard some level of it as you point out i think where it really matters is how we use it how we apply it and the yes and is really about trying to expand possibility trying to accept realities as they are and to appreciate what may be positive in that and then figure out how we can use our own ideas to build on that and to carry advance the story forward and so in a way i think the yes but is a way of saying no it's just simply yes but i disagree with this point of view <laughs> you know the yes or is a more creative workaround i think people will come up with a really you know someone will suggest a plausible idea around the table and then someone else will say yes or we could do this thing which is basically saying no uh, no right. i you know i'd much prefer this other idea even though they're saying yes so yes is usually lip service and what it's really about i think is accepting the reality as is helping to acknowledge your point of view, letting you know I've heard that point of view, maybe even embracing parts of it or accepting what I can about it, acknowledging it or appreciating it in some way. And then it doesn't necessarily mean agreement. So I learned this from one of my improv instructors through the years. I've had a lot of different mentors and it was really helpful to understand that it doesn't mean that I have to agree with your point of view to say yes. There are ways that yes can be used without having to be in agreement. It seems like there's you use the word acknowledgement. Uh, the yes is acknowledging it, but not in a vacuous way or a unmeaningful way. Like acknowledging it in a very meaningful, uh, visceral way. And that's actually hard to do. You were talking about paying lip service. It's easy to say, yeah, because we're often so much in our own heads. Right. We're waiting for you to stop talking so that I can share right. my point of view, right? right? And so I think this happens. And this is one of the things that really undermine team communication so much. They're not really communicating. They're maybe expressing their ideas. Maybe they're holding on to their ideas and not willing to risk something that may be perceived as unfriendly or unwelcoming or challenging or going back to my original hypothesis, boring or dull, right? Something that may seem like not everyone goes duh when you say it. Right. Right. And yet the duh comments actually might be really useful to bring up. Well, and sometimes people's does are different. What's obvious to people, and, and you were talking about collaboration, that's kind of what makes that work is, is you're pointing out the obvious and maybe obvious to, to bring it back to DevOps, maybe obvious to the developers, but it's not obvious to the ops team or other way Vice around. Versa. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. And I think that's where the power of the improvisational workshops I think really are so important for these teams because now we get a chance to see that. It's really transparent and it's really clear, wow, you were thinking like a dev person, you're thinking like an ops person, and now I have that understanding. So there's a greater awareness and empathy, I think, in a way for people's points of view and also for someone else's role and function within the team or within the organization. So as teams are coming together, often and new projects are new, there's some new element that's coming together. Either we have new people on our team or we're coming together for the first time. I think improv, if done sooner than later, actually on the team, will just help to accelerate the ways in which the team can collaborate more effectively together. So it's about coming together, getting to know each other better, getting to understand and have that greater awareness of one another and also just techniques and tips and things that will make it easier as we go forward in collaboration because we know there will be times where we're in disagreement how do we move forward productively right. improv may unlock some of the secrets well it sounds like too when you're doing the cultural transformation and bringing teams together there's sort of this thing you know people want to like my phone conversations they want to plan that out we'll have a we'll have a beer bust and then people will talk and then we'll maybe have some meetings around cross-functional whatevers and then it's fine right but in reality if you've got two teams that have never worked together before the skill you want to be teaching them is how to work you know it's it's a derivative skill it's how to work together and work in the unexpected and a lot of people just kind of look at it from the perspective of if i do these things it'll all somehow come together but that's actually not really the skill you you know that's not what you want to be having people do i'm thinking about i was working with a, a company that was working with another company and it was a very sort of difficult relationship at times and there were some things we just could not resolve and they were very contentious and when we went back and looked and did the value stream app and all of that the response to it was well let's just grab a beer and the thing is is that we'd approached it more from we don't know what the world is going to look like so let's just accept that and let's get skills to deal with that fact we wouldn't have just wrapped it in well you don't agree and you don't agree but just have a beer and somehow magically it'll work <laughs> itself out 
Right. Yeah, I think that's a good insight. I mean, in so many ways, there are two things that are assumptions there. One is that the beer bust or this social event will kind of, as you say, help us to kind of rush things right. <laughs> under the rug that we could kind of forget about it, right? We'll drink it away and we'll just forget that that's actually an issue. Right. And then the second piece would be that these meetings will give us a chance to talk about that. How many people have been at really effective meetings where every meeting you go to, you're like, yes, I'm so glad we did that. And that type <laughs> yeah. of interaction, right? Often doesn't happen. So I think the same way with other quote unquote team building type of activities, to me, there there may be some value in getting people outside of the regular habits and patterns and ways of, of interacting. So in that sense, it may be positive. I think oftentimes there are guys as some kind of you know competitive battle so that you're actually trying to compete against each other, which mm-hmm. you know is actually undermining in some of right. the, the ways and, and in part reinforcing bad behaviors that we may already have. So if I'm kind of bossy or I kind of tend to be a wallflower and hold back and not speak up, we're, we're just reinforcing those right. Bad and, it, and in some cases, there are situations that are going to exacerbate that. So, for instance, I've seen this with the bear bust. The person that is bossy and loud and boisterous gets obnoxiously so at the Friday bear bust. <laughs> or the wallflower retracts more, right, and watches it all, right? That's not, as you were saying, not really solving the problem. Though it is, a lot of times it's done because it's kind of like we don't really... We don't have a playbook, and so we're sort of coming up with this, but it's not... It, it's kind of duct-taping together a solution. That's right. Yeah, I think, I mean, it's acknowledging that there is this situation that we want to try to resolve, and we don't maybe have things, I mean, obviously, Improvisation Workshop may not be one of the tools in our toolkit, and I think if it were, and more companies and more teams were willing to try it and give it a shot, they would find probably a different outcome that they might realize that this actually offers us something that will help us in the future, ways forward when we feel like we might run into those obstacles or different points of view, unresolved contingencies where we need to have something to move forward well this may give us some tools that we can actually think for find these positive solutions find other workarounds accept the parts that we can't and figure out how do we still move forward because we know regardless of what happens the future is still approaching right? right this next step forward needs to be found so i mean you kind of already just touched on it with that but i wanted to talk a little bit about like very kind of fundamental question what's the value for me in doing this now you talked a lot about teams and that's good i want to help my team one thing you brought up which i thought was interesting which is certainly a value both for teams and individuals is sort of the plasticity element and we were talking a little bit about neuroplasticity which is kind of a was a weird topic but but that it the improv can actually kind of help with that and the whole it, it really is the whole kind of thinking on your feet thing but that it actually can improve those skills and be helpful in that arena. It's true. You know, a lot of people that do our workshops, not only do they talk about what it made a difference for their team, but they'll write on our evaluations when we do it at the end of the workshop, just what a personal growth experience it was for them. And whether it was the skeptic or the scared participant who goes, wow, this is not at all what I thought it was going to be. I'm really impressed or I'm really glad our team did it. I'm glad we took that risk. For them, it's really about a personal accomplishment, right? They've done something that they've maybe overcome their own fear or overcome their own personal obstacle. And it's a way of finding, as I say, it's a way of either finding your voice. It might be a way of learning how to collaborate more effectively to let go. If you tend to be you know, a control freak, I've been that in some cases in my past. And so I'm learning to let go, right? And let go of some of that and trust others. I think there are a lot of positive individual outcomes that can at least get started through this process. And the more you practice it, the easier it gets. So now for me, when I go into an unknown situation, I'm much more confident and comfortable than I would have been in the past. Well, even even here, it's, you know, it's funny, we, we were talking about coming over to record this and uh, I mentioned when when I let you into the into the apartment building I was like oh by the way I'm dog sitting and is that okay because I I didn't tell you that and and you were like uh what I thought was interesting is you were like yeah we'll see it should be fine and then it came up later when we were talking about it that you're actually not really a dog person at all but you sort of accepted this you know give it the chance to see what it was like and it turned out that the basset hound is very <laughs> disarming and not very low low energy yes i wish i could bring a basset hound to every improv training i do now it would be disarming and yeah. help people be less afraid of it because in my mind you're right i assume every dog is going to be an attack dog right. and a guard dog and they're going to come up and, and jump up and bite me so in that sense right in the same way people look at improv workshops i can understand yeah the terror that goes but i mean mind. the thing that, you, that helped you kind of say well let's see how it unfold were these these sort of improvisational skills because because we all do that we all assume a situation is going to be a certain way and it may totally not turn out to be that way 
more often than not, it doesn't. Yeah. I mean, that's the that's the exciting thing, I think, is that so much of our, our life, we have, there's a term in improv terminology in a book called Everything's an Offer. They talk about shadow stories, and it's this idea of what we expect the future to hold, and we're full of these shadow stories. We have all of these stories about what's going to happen in the future, when in fact we can't know. Right. We can have some degree of certainty based on our past experience, but oftentimes we'll fill in areas where we have no experience, but we'll imagine what it's going to be like. And we've already filled in this really elaborate stories, in part because I think humans are, are natural storytellers. We right. we've have this story as a part of our DNA. So in a way, when that happens, we're already naturally choosing certain safety right for ourselves. Right. If we say no, we don't want to do an improv workshop. Well, we've, as Keith Johnstone, an improv theorist and founder of, of different schools of improv thought, you know, would say, well, by saying no, we're actually retaining part of our safety. It's a, it's a healthy thing. And to say yes, well, we're simply going on adventures that we wouldn't have done, you know, were we to say no. Right. And so do we want adventure? Do we want safety? Those are very different goals and different outcomes. And so if we say yes or no, we have a more likely chance of getting those possibilities. It's interesting um, that you say that because I was just thinking about, I've seen this pattern play itself out a few times now where some higher level, you know, manager or VP or whatever had a bad experience with a QA director or a release engineering director or manager or whatever. And so they're like, oh, well, well, we're going to not have that role at this company. And predictably, so they scale to 200 or 300 people and they have problems shipping the product or the product quality is because the engineers are trying to do features. They're not QA engineers. It doesn't work out well. But the <laughs> right. point is is that we have that story. I, you know, I had this one bad experience, and therefore they're all going to be like that. Or even on a smaller scale, I need to insulate and protect against these 18 failure classes because my last three jobs had all of them. Right. And maybe it makes us miss that 16 of those aren't applicable and we're missing two major ones that are going to be like a constant bane of our existence. Right. right? It's, it's interesting that the shadow stories as you call them, play themselves out in a work context as well. All the time. I mean, it's amazing how many choices we make based on those those things that are that are not really true about the situation now. But they're they've informed an entire as you talk about the flowchart of the conversation we might right. have, right? We're not we're we're gonna give ourselves that entire tree, that branch we're just never gonna go down it until we're forced into it. Right. Obviously by some other external factor that's beyond our control that forces us to get it. And then we realize we start looking for ways to see how it doesn't work. We keep trying to go back right. to our old mental models. So I think improv, at least it makes us, I think, more open to possibility. One of my favorite quotes was, ask yourself, is the opposite also true? And by doing that, we kind of expand our, our point of view and, and we kind of stay open to more possibility for longer periods of time. Yeah. And we're not willing to, you know, and sometimes we think of it as a time save, right? We want it. It's more efficient. If we don't do this, I've learned this in the past. Right. But as you point out, we, we may be unnecessarily cutting ourselves off. And that's where the uh, communication and the collaborative part comes in. Because if you have four people effectively collaborating and they're saying, yeah, that's not a case we can identify that we care about. But if you have two or three of them saying, yeah, from my shadow stories, this is really a problem that you know you need to address. I really like that. How did you uh, ask yourself if, if the opposite is also true? Ask yourself if the opposite can also be true. Can, well, so what's interesting about that is I think in a lot of cases it, it can be. You see this in the... we had. A episode about this about asking and answering questions and i think given a different set of requirements the opposite is often true i mean engineering is trade-offs and so a lot of times we come into a question on the internet where someone says well how do i do x i know that x is not really the preferred way of doing it but i've I, I need to know how to do that. And people say, well, you're stupid. And it's like, well, no, you don't know all of the requirements I'm working with, right? And it's an example of right. the opposite, you know, the stupid thing is actually true and needs to be acknowledged and addressed in some way. Yeah, I think that's that's really powerful. I mean, if, if companies asked, why are we not doing an improv workshop instead of should we do an improv yeah, workshop, right? Yeah, true. That, yeah, that's actually a really good, that's a good question. Well, I wanted to point out, this is not theoretical in so much as, you know, people are like, oh, this sounds great. I mean, you know, maybe I should do it. I mean, you've worked with some big name tech companies and those companies are household names. We would all know their names. We all use their products every day. So it's not, it's not some like fairy dust or magical beans <laughs> that if you plant, maybe something will happen. Companies that get the the team plasticity and the collaboration and the breaking down the silos and then you have to deal with that somehow because you can't just throw a bunch of engineers in the same room and say, get along and maybe put pizza and beer under the door, right? Um, <laughs> right. They need to have some sort of way to, to get those people collaborating effectively. 
there are companies doing this and they've been successful with these workshops. That's right. And they use them for all different things. I think that's what I find most interesting about the workshops I lead is that we can focus on what skills they want to build. So if they really are looking for something that's just fun, release stress, let go, you know, blow off some steam and have fun together, we can accomplish that goal really well because improv is fun and playful and often quite more fun than people even can imagine. On the other hand, if they really do want to work on something about either helping teams get more familiar to build team cohesion, familiarity, trust, rapport within their colleagues, whether it's how we collaborate more effectively together in terms of the collaboration and teamwork aspects of it, or as you point out, the communication aspects. How do we communicate our ideas more successfully in large groups with one another, with our boss, with our teams? All of these skills can be learned through improvisation in a really fun way, but in a very practical, engaging way so that it's not just sitting through a boring training where we're all yawning, trying to really get through it, but we're actually having a lot of fun together and learning from each other. And we're not just doing the, the <laughs> trust doing fall. a trust fall. Right, yeah, right. or the, the, what was the other one you read, the rope course. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know? or scavenger hunt, right? There's so right. many different activities that we could do. I think improv in a way has this imaginary net beneath us when we do it right. When it's facilitated well, we create that that space that allows people to take that risk, metaphorically, if you will. And for some of them, it's a big risk. It's as big as falling backwards into a group blindfold. It may be more so, you know. Right. It would be like karaoke for some people, right? right? Or my dog. The me, yeah. Yeah, sure, yeah. Right. So uh, whatever those those different things are meant to kind of loosen up people, it actually creates more tension. And so improv can do the same thing if it's if it's handled poorly. I think, you know, just as any other skill, as you point out, yes, and can be abused really badly and, and actually have... Yes, maybe, but or we should, you know. Sure, right. Or even yes, and, you know, yes, and I will never try that. You know, it's not really yes, <laughs> yes and. Yes, and anyway. shut the f*** up, right? <laughs> yeah, for sure. So, Chris, you uh, are doing these coaching sessions with organizations all the time. And so people, uh, if they're interested in, in using improv to sort of explore some of these skill areas, especially in a DevOps transformation context, they can contact you and get some more information on how that's going to be helpful for their specific environment. Absolutely. Yeah, I'd love to talk with them and have that conversation, learn how their team might use improv to help their team move forward effectively. Great. Great. Well, it was uh, great having you on uh, the ship show with us, Chris. Great. Thanks so much, Paul. And uh, we'll be back in a moment. Welcome back to the ship show. So for our last segment tonight, we're going to be doing a tool tip came across this on the Twitter sphere this week. It's a website called explainshell.com. You can uh, well, go to it at explainshell.com. And basically, it's a way to, uh, a safe way to uh, test your shell commands and see what will happen. It gives you a bunch of examples there that you can click on. And it basically dissects what the command is. So it's useful if you uh, are having to look at a shell script, you know, those evil shell scripts that everyone likes to hate on, uh, and you want to look at a particularly complicated line, you can paste that in, and it will give you the combination of the man pages for the commands involved and uh, some other information. Uh, and like I said, they have a couple of examples right on the front page. Uh, and I was actually plugging in some commands from my history to see if they had that. Did you guys... Uh, see this? Yeah, I, I, it, this is something that I would have killed for like a decade ago. Um, <laughs> well, just because it, it's, you know, basically it's it's does all the work for you of grepping the man pages and kind of telling you the important parts, because especially if you're looking for a, like the, the find man page. Yes. The IP tables. Oh, God. Yeah. yeah. So I just care about what the operators do, and that's what this lets you do. It's like, hey, this is what this command, you know, not, not necessarily what it would do, what the output would be, but these are the types of things that you can feed into this command. It just distills it to the, the least amount of stuff you need to know to make the command functional. And yeah, well, I understand the, it. The thing I like is that it breaks down the components of the command and yes. then visually links them so it's clear like what the dot in find actually means when you type it, you know, like what that's yeah. about. Yeah, um, and I love the the hover effect because you yes. hover over each piece, and it just especially if somebody's just getting like this is something I would use in a in a class even if yeah. people it was like a, a CLI basics and people are like. I need to find this, you know. It right. would be like, here, look at this, and then if we have more questions, we can dig deeper. But it's it lets you not have to like 
parse man pages, basically, right. which is great. Right. I'm, I'm in love with this thing now. Yeah, and the source code is on GitHub. I'm probably going to butcher the name, but we can thank Idan, Idan, Camara for it. Uh, and the sort you can uh, check the source code out. We'll link to it in the show notes. But yeah, I think we've also all, all had that thing where you somebody says, "Hey, type this into your shell and see what happens," <laughs> um, which is yeah, horrible. <laughs> Horrible advice, but now you can sort of paste it into Explain Shell, and it will let you know what craziness you're about to, to unleash on your system. Just pipe this URL into Bash and see what happens. Yeah. <laughs> what could possibly go wrong? Yeah, seriously. All right. Well, we have uh, a number of conferences coming up that the call for papers is ending. We'll put a list of the ones that we've mentioned in the show notes that are coming up for December and January. So you should take a look at those if you're interested in that sort of thing. And also if you're looking at what conferences are upcoming, you can also take a look at the list. Yeah, I was going to say for, for conferences, uh, just give a shout out. Uh, Monitorama is, they're, they're going to be in Portland this next go round. And they think they may have just finished up early bird tickets. I know I got mine. Uh, okay. Uh-huh. Uh, Monitorama is May fifth through seventh, twenty fourteen, uh, in Portland, Oregon. All right. And I missed I missed the first one because of the food poisoning, so I was really bummed. Uh, <laughs> so I'm 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 trying to make up for last year. Yeah. All right. Well, so from San Francisco, this is Paul Reed telling everyone to stay warm and signing off. And from Northern Massachusetts, EJ Sermello signing off. From San Diego, the Seuss of signing off. From an unseasonably cold Texas, this is Seth signing off. From a holy crap cold Portland, Oregon, this is Sasha signing off. And we'll see you all uh, in a couple weeks. Bye.